Dharmasu. So we begin the, the cycle for the afternoon, returning full cycle to the cultivation of loving-kindness for ourselves, the strong emphasis on venturing into the realm of possibility. To envision qualities of well-being, of fulfillment, of satisfaction that we've never experienced in the past. In other words, not just looking for reruns, not looking for just getting back where we were someplace in the past, but where we've never been, and allowing ourselves to be visionaries. And each time we return to the practice, if we're doing it really with a freshness, then each time it's unprecedented. We're not doing reruns of the meditation. Oh yeah, I remember this ten days ago. I'll do that all over again. You know? <laughs> then we're defeating the whole purpose. Right? And it raises, I mean, the most profound issues about human existence and human nature. This pursuit of happiness. It's so easily trivialized. And a lot of really smart people said, oh no, I don't. happiness is just trivial. You, you should be striving for something much more important than that. You know. But the deepest Western traditions, the Buddhist tradition, the Hindu tradition, the Christian, the Socratic tradition, none of these, I think the wisest individuals who ever walked on the earth, none of these great beings trivialized happiness. But in fact, really quite uniformly, East and West, ancient, modern, emphasizing the pursuit of happiness is the very meaning of life. But then everything hinges, of course, on what do you mean by happiness? And none of them were suggesting the trivial, that is, the meaning of life is to you know, pursue hedonic pleasure. Nowadays, in our materialistic world, the pursuit of happiness is a very marketable pursuit. The assumption, since we're simply animals, is that our prime directive, our fundamental impulse, the deepest impulse, is to survive at all costs and to procreate. Or at least have fun trying. <laughs> and when you're not just surviving and procreating, then just have as good a time as you can. You know, get the latest technology, get the latest entertainments, get the best vacations, and so on, and then die. And you've done your job. Don't expect much, don't get much, but there you go. So, that vision, that it's really about surviving, procreating, and having as good a time as you can, and avoiding as much unpleasantness, and snuff it out, by the way, when unpleasantness comes up. You feeling depressed? We've got a drug for that. I can imagine if I'd gone to a psychiatrist back in 1970, and just feeling life was empty. I just, I really did. I mean, I was doing, everything was good. Everything in my life, everything significant was good. Good school, loving parents, excellent background, interesting background. Lived on two continents, had my own car, just one thing after another. It was just all good. I mean, you know, like there's got nothing to complain about except for I didn't want any of it. None of it. I just looked at it and said, I can see how this plays out. I'm 20. There's no mystery. This is all obvious. I can see the next 60 years. And there's nothing there, nothing for me. And this is no criticism of anybody else in my life. It's nobody else's fault. It's not a deficiency on the part of any other person or the university or the nice car I had and so forth and so on. I just thought, that's never going to do it. And it's hopeless. 
So if I'd gone to a psychiatrist and told that, they said, oh, well, we have a drug for you. We can help you. You're depressed. You're depressed. But we can help you get over it. And uh, so they would have snuffed it. They would have just anesthetized the deepest impulse. Too bad. Happily, I didn't go to a psychiatrist. Now, I'm sure they're very wise psychiatrists. I don't mean to judge an entire profession. But on the whole, I think I'm probably right. And I heard just recently that nowadays when people go for psychological problems, they first go to the, they're pretty much required, at least in the United States, you have a psychological problem, you first go to your general practitioner. That's where you go. The general practitioner has you, gives you 15 minutes. That's pretty much what your slaughter time is. 15 minutes, you tell them the symptoms. I'm feeling depressed. I feel life has no meaning. I can't sleep, whatever. And in 80% of the cases, the general practitioner doesn't even refer you to a psychiatrist. Just gives you a drug. Go home. Take this drug. If it doesn't work, come back. we got lots of drugs. <laughs> we got drugs. You can just keep on trying a new drug every week of your life. we got more drugs. Man, do we have drugs. we got drugs, and I want you to just say yes. So that's one approach. One approach. But let now let's slip to, you know, out of insanity to at least a quest for sanity. Where does this impulse from ha for happiness come? When we're not satisfied with merely surviving, and we're not satisfied with merely procreating, procreating, or deciding not to procreate, and not satisfied with just the hedonic stimulation. Where is that coming from? And from my perspective, there is no satisfying explanation, no even meaningful, let alone a compelling explanation, viewed entirely from the per perspective or framework of evolutionary biology. It makes no sense. Once you've survived and procreated, you should be storing up your energy to procreate some more. You know, you shouldn't be off going to Phuket for eight weeks. This is not going to help. <laughs> it really is counterproductive. You could be having babies right now, you know. You could be doing something more worthwhile than, you know, cultivating your mind. <laughs> and so, so let's assume that that magnificent theory of Darwin, which has so much truth in it, has certain limitations to it. And what it doesn't explain is the meaning of life. Or why, even when we have everything hedonic, we're still dissatisfied. So let's say, okay, just like a limiting case, just like classical physics, Newtonian physics, tremendous explanatory power, but it's limited. As 20th century physics determined, it's limited, and some of its fundamental assumptions are just flat out wrong. Absolute space, absolute time, absolute matter, absolute energy are absolutely at the foundation of classical physics, and they're all absolutely wrong. Right? 20th century physics showed that, really beyond any reasonable doubt. And so, let us assume that the Darwinian view, the evolutionary view of human existence, has a lot of truth value to it. This is not science versus religion. This is just saying, hey, it's an explanatory framework that has certain strengths, and it has limitations, and what it leaves out is the meaning of life. And, of course, the word genuine happiness has no meaning whatsoever for animals in an evolutionary framework. And so, where does that impulse come from? Where does that impulse that's striving for something more than just more hedonic titillation or stimulation. So let's move into another framework that has much greater depth. Buddha Dhamma is a good one. So where does it come from? 
And it comes from Buddha nature. It comes from Buddha nature. What makes us restless? Why is your mind so active? That's an interesting question, isn't it? You sit down and you want the mind just to be calm. I'm settling my body, speech, and mind in their natural state. Mind, you can be calm now. There's nothing you need to do. It's really okay. You can just calm down now. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. No, no, I, I, I meant it. I meant it. You really can. You don't need to talk. There's nothing to talk about. It's just fine. So you can be quiet. Ah. Blah, 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 blah. Something's very strange here. Why does it always want to be in motion? The mind in motion, churning out one thing after another, even when we decide not to. Hey, I'm in charge. Mind, be quiet. Okay. Blah, 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 blah. Why is that happening? And there's a giveaway in the Tibetan term that is, as I said earlier, a synonym of sentient being, and that is doa. One is on the move. We're on the move. The mind's on the move. Speech is often on the move. The body's on the move. But especially the mind. Even when we're sleeping, the mind's on the move. When it has an entertainment, it just creates a whole environment for itself multiple times to entertain itself, you know, multiple times. You get five, five to seven movies every night. Some of them are long playing movies, some are more like little clips, teasers. But boy, this mind really wants to entertain itself. You know. So, there's something really going on there. This impulse for motion. The Buddhist understanding, it stems from your Buddha nature. And you'll never be at rest. You'll never be at rest until you tap into the source of, as Tsongkhapa so beautifully says, your eternal longing, Dengidduma, Dengidduma, your eternal longing, until you, you tap that into its source. And there's so many areas where we feel we could be satisfied, but no, keep on going, 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 going. What's the ultimate source of this eternal longing? And, of course, it's your own Buddha nature. It's who you are. So what are the limits? And what's the full depth? What will satisfy this eternal longing, this heart's desire, this most essential yearning for well-being that keeps us on the move, keeps us striving? Kept Move the Gautama out of, out of his home where he had everything. I mean, I thought I had everything. He, what more? Right. He moving out of that and then striving the samadhi, and then moving on. Great samadhi, bliss, at the flick of a switch. And still dissatisfied. He was really dissatisfied. He was incredibly dissatisfied. I mean, he achieved shamatha like within a matter of days. And he's still dissatisfied. Goes for all the jhanas, all the samapati, still dissatisfied. This is a tough customer. You know, all of the samadhis, all of the bliss of all the samadhis, inconceivable equanimity and serenity and he's still dissatisfied. So he goes and beats himself up for six years. You know, all of that coming out of this yearning, this yearning for something that needs to be satisfied. And then finally, after all that period, then coming in, finding this fusion of Shamadeva Vipassana and so awaking, waking up fully, completely to his full capacity fully manifesting the potential of his awareness that was present all the time. And so what's that? When you let your mind loose, we're going to be going back, of course, to this vision quest with the four questions. We'll be venturing forth boldly where you have never gone before. Into the realm of possibility, much more interesting than just getting in a rocket and heading off into deep space. I mean, there's a lot of air, you know, a lot of empty space out there and a bunch of rocks. 
you know, so you can save yourself some time. I can tell you. It's a bunch of rocks. And there's some other populated, a lot, of places out there. But they're as screwed up as we are. So there's really no reason to go. If you want enlightenment, actually, there are good teachers here. I'm not one of them, but I can, t- I can tell you where they are. Okay? So what are the possibilities? What are the possibilities? How about this phrase from Atisha? This, this lamp for the path to enlightenment. This lamp for the path to awakening. When he says, I paraphrase closely, he says, if you don't have, if you don't have extrasensory perception, you really can't help other sentient beings. So therefore, develop extrasensory perception. And by achieving shamatha, you can develop extrasensory perception. And by so doing, the merit you can accumulate in one day is greater than the merit you can accumulate in a hundred lifetimes without having achieved extrasensory perception by way of shamatha. And that's not even to touch yet on the amount of benefit, the goodness, the transformative power you can bring to the world if you've achieved the pashana. That's beyond beyond. But just with shamatha, and the extrasensory abilities, and of course there are the zuntua abilities, paranormal abilities. And these are you open you open the door, then you can just get to work and get them done. If you have that platform of shamatha, then that's all very feasible. It'd be kind of cool. I wonder sometimes about the enormous, the enormous popularity of this series of books, the Harry Potter books. Enormous, like from five-year-olds up to 90-years-old, people on their deathbed, go, Harry! (laughs) You know, there's no age limit. I mean, this has captivated like three generations. A friend of mine was just telling me about her, about her professor, who's a brilliant, I mean, really an exceptional neuroscientist. Uh, He's published like 250 papers, multiple books, he has chairs in two different universities. This is in Europe. Uh, the man is really just really extraordinarily clear mind. And she told me, and, and, and he, is, he is her dissertation advisor, and uh, she told me just recently that when he showed up at class, he was wearing Dumbledore's hat and brought a wand. <laughs> He's a total Harry Potter freak, you know, and a first-rate neuroscientist but totally into Harry Potter. Now, is, is this due to some kind of genetic brain damage? <laughs> or is this kind of some psychological in, in, infantile impulse that never got worked out? Maybe it wasn't breastfed long enough. One can all come up with all kinds of those kind of explanations. Or one can go a bit deeper and consider maybe there's something so deep within him that is longing for that kind of freedom. And he's willing to put on a Dumbledore hat and come with a wand into the classroom. You know. Because there's something in him that says he just doesn't want to deny that. What if it were true? 
the power of the mind, the power of imagination, the ability to fly. His Holiness Dalai Lama commented, he met some old Tibetan nun, I think from Eastern Tibet. Tibetan nun. And she said, where she lived in retreat, there was one yogi who was lifting up in the cave. And she said, she said she'd see him flying back and forth across the valley. No broom. <laughs> That's really something, you know. The ordinary people need brooms, but these yogis, no broom. They just clairvoyance, ability of mind over matter. What if all that's not just fiction? What if the enormous population, apparently this is the most popular series of movies in history, these seven movies now, of course, they're finished, the most popular in history. And it's by, you know, children, teenage kids in Magic World. And yet such appeal. Other movies like The Lord of the Rings, of course, great book. Then something with no book behind it, as I know, Avatar. But just seeing, you know, the, it's something stirring there. Something stirring. What if it were all possible? What if it were possible to display as much freedom and creativity, be shaping the world, transforming the world, moving magically through the world in a waking state, as people who are very accomplished in dream yoga or lucid dreaming can in the dream state? What's very well known about dream dream reality is you get what you expect. Get what you expect. That you're really creating it. Subliminally, in a non-lucid dream, you don't know you're creating it. It seems like it's all happening to you. But nevertheless, the impulses of your own mind, I mean, nobody else is doing this dream to you. It's being created by your own mind, of course but involuntarily, in an obsessive, compulsive, delusional fashion. That's what a non-lucid dream is. Whereas, wake up to the nature of reality you're experiencing, become lucid in the dream, which just means recognizing the dream as a dream, and now suddenly, just another whole world has opened up to you. And it's a matter of then just growing more and more and more awake to realize more and more thoroughly what is the nature of this dream reality, what is the nature of my presence in the dream, how much malleability is there? One of you, in speaking with me uh, on one-on-one, -on -one, since, since I'm not mentioning your name, then no problem, I think, of privacy. But the person has quite vivid dreams. And the person happens to be a woman, so that cuts it down to roughly half of the people here. I've never checked out what percentage of gender it is. I don't care. But woman dreaming, and in the dream, she was a male pirate. You know, why in a non-lucid dream? Why not? Why not? But now if you imagine taking the reins of your dream in your own hands, what couldn't you become in the dream? If you're a woman, you can certainly become a male pirate. Right? If you're a male pirate, you could become a woman. Do all kinds of things. But you could transform not only into other types of human beings. There was one woman I knew, very accomplished in lucid dreaming. She transformed herself, you might recall the story, she trans transformed herself into a phonograph record to see what the world would be like, you know, from that perspective. And then into a butterfly, and she flew out the window. And so, there is just no limit, really. The limit is only your imagination, when you're lucid in the dream, to exploring how you can shape it, transform it, and be utterly free. A skywalker in the dream. When you know the nature of the dream.
when we know the nature of this reality. The Buddhist, especially from Mahayana Buddhism, and most explicitly from Dzogchen, says, oh, when you know the nature of this reality, then this too, you have freedom. You really transform it. So could this be possible? The enormous, the enormity of the creativity of the mind to shape reality, transform reality, to shape and transform yourself. The enormity of the capacity for loving kindness and compassion, really boundless. The scope of your awareness just spreading out like in all directions, unimpeded, clear through space and time. The Buddha encouraged us to be absolutely radical, radical visionaries to place no limits on our capacity for wisdom, for awareness, for compassion, and the sheer creativity drawing from the creative energy of consciousness itself. And funneling that all in, letting those fuse, the wisdom, the compassion, the creative power, all into one, to bring your own being to its complete fulfillment, and then to take that, turn it out, transform it into benevolent service to all creatures, all sentient beings. So, be bold. Your, your meditations are private. So you don't need to be embarrassed by somebody looking, peeking in and saying, oh, you're being so unrealistic. They're private. Let your imagination play. Let it frolic. Move deeply into the realm of possibility. Because as much as you rise up to meet Dharma, there's just an ocean of Dharma ready to rise up to meet you. And there are still teachers. There are still teachers. I'm very much hoping to receive some further guidance from one of them. He's old, but I've, I've been watching DVDs of his teachings. Uh, he's really one of the old ones. Young Tanamaji. Jason, have you ever met him? He's of that generation. Tushi he's that generation. Oh, incredible. Still alive, still mind, totally clear. I'm hoping. There's still some left. For them, there's just no limit. There's just no limit. So when you move into the cultivation of loving kindness for yourself, now let's add another element here. Element of light. Last time we just breathed through it. Breathing out, breathing out, breathing out. If you like, it's only an invitation. If you like, as you are Engaging in this practice this time as we raise these four questions. As you envision your own flourishing, the unfolding, the manifestation, the complete drawing forth of your inner capacity for happiness, well-being and fulfillment, as you do so, if you wish, visualize this dimension of pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, Buddha nature, as a radiant, inexhaustible source of light an orb of light at your heart, center of your chest. And as you breathe out, as you, as if you're dreaming, as you're dreaming the dreamscape of your own flourishing, as you breathe out, imagine light flowing from your heart, from just an inexhaustible source, and just flooding, illuminating, making manifest and making real. Imagine. Filling that vision with light, a light rooted in reality. Fill your whole being with that light, your body. Imagine your body just being suffused by that light. Your whole mind, every dimension of your awareness, suffused with that light. 
And then as you go through the, the, the later, the later questions of imagining what would you love to receive from the world, imagine light flowing in from all sides. As you imagine transforming, evolving, transforming as a human being, being free of this and imbued with that, breathing life into that. And finally, when you imagine what would you love to offer to the world, breathe out from your heart. Imagine the light, like magical light, taking on the forms of what you would really love to offer. In terms of that third phase, from what would you love to be free and with what would you love to be imbued, even this last week of meditation may be helpful. Right? As some of you, quite a number of you, I think, are already starting to dredge the psyche, having emotions coming up, dreams coming up, desires, memories coming up. And you see a lot of, a lot of stuff that may be not so helpful on your path, may be really obstructing the full flowering of your own Buddha nature. So you get a clearer sense. What's in the way? What's the rubbish? What's the rubbish that it would be good just to clear out? Clear out. And what are the qualities that would be good to be nurtured and just allow them to completely flourish, to flower, to blossom? So, each time we return, I invite you to do so in a totally fresh way, as if you've never done it before. Re-envision yourself. Re-envision your own future. Give your whole practice a direction. Direct in the pursuit of genuine happiness, illuminated with wisdom. And be bold and daring not placing artificial limits on what you already think you can't do just because you've not been able to do it in the past. So you've not been able to fly across the valley. You know. Hey, don't let that get you down. You know. If at first you don't succeed, then achieve shamatha. So, good. Please find a comfortable position. Let's begin by attending to the world of actuality, the actuality of your body, speech, and mind, and settle each one in its natural state.
Then let's move into the realm of possibility. As you raise the question, what would truly make you happy? What is your heart's desire? And envision it as if for the first time. With each outbreath arouse the yearning, may it be so. May I be truly well and happy. And if you will imagine symbolically this deepest source of your yearning for happiness, this Buddha nature, as an incandescent orb of white light at your heart, and with each outbreath imagine light cascading out in all directions from this orb. Filling, saturating your body and permeating your mind. With each outbreath, breathe life and light into this vision of your own flourishing.
Then fully letting her imagination play with each out-breath. Imagine realizing here and now your heart's desire. In order to realize such well-being, clearly there must be help from outside. We cannot do it on our own. So pursue the second question. What would you love to receive from the world around you to satisfy your hedonic needs and to help you along the path to the realization of your deepest aspiration? What would you love to receive from the world? As you breathe in, imagine the light of kindness of sentient beings all around you. And if it is part of your worldview, imagine with each in-breath the light of blessings of the enlightened ones flowing in from all sides. Reality rising up to meet you and meeting your every need from moment to moment, breath to breath. As you arouse the yearning, may I truly receive all that I need to find the happiness that is my heart's desire. And breathe in the light.
And imagine this light saturating every aspect of your being. Imagine receiving all that you need from moment to moment, breath to breath. then in order to realize the happiness that you seek, raise a third question, and that is, in order to do so, to find such fulfillment, how would you love to transform as a human being? From what qualities would you love to be free? With what qualities would you love to be enriched? What kind of a person would you love to become? With each outbreath, imagine this life flowing from your heart. Imagine it setting in motion this evolution, this transformation, this maturation. With each outbreath, arouse a yearning that it may be so. And with each outbreath, imagine it becoming so.
And finally, in, in order to find the greatest meaning and fulfillment for yourself, since you do not exist in isolation, but in profound and existential interdependence with the world around you and all those who dwell within it. In order to find the greatest happiness, imagine now what would you love to offer to the world? What goods would you love to bring to the world? drawing on your own unique background and your heartfelt aspirations, attending to those who are close and to those who are far, over the short term and the long term. What would you love to offer to the world? With each outbreath arouse this yearning of loving kindness, may it be so. And imagine from this inexhaustible source a cascade of light flowing out in all directions. And imagine this light magically taking on the forms of the goods you would love to offer, the blessings you would love to bring. imagine it being so.
release all appearances and all aspirations and let your awareness rest in its own nature, its own innate luminosity, knowing itself. I mentioned in a dream, any dream, ordinary dream, the kind of things that are happening, the limitations of what can happen, correspond quite exactly to what we think can happen. They're after all, they're free creations of our own mind. And so the limitations of our own mind manifest in the limitations of the dream. And the same is so true during the waking state. in the Majamaka view, the middle way view, the pinnacle of Buddhist philosophy. It's often said that this waking reality is like a dream. It's like a dream. Everything appears to be absolutely out there. Everything simply seems to be happening to us as we're blown like a leaf in the wind by circumstances beyond our control. Certain victims of reality. And everything's absolutely out there. And I'm absolutely in here. Like a bunch of Billiard balls bumping into each other. Absolute billiard balls. That's how things appear. And the appearance is fraudulent. It's deceiving. It's utterly misleading. And in fact, there's nothing absolutely out there and there's nothing absolutely in here. It's all arising in a network, a matrix, to use another really popular movie. Wow, why does that strike such a chord? Why did it strike such a chord? Why did so many people across generations totally resonate with that? 
And why did they have to make two more after it? <laughs> Sometimes you should stop when you're ahead. Everything seems to be absolutely out there, as in a dream, in a lucid dream, in a non-lucid dream, and even in a lucid dream. Everything seems to be absolutely out there, and in a non-lucid dream you think it is. And you think you're really in here. And then you suffer. So this Madhyamaka view, this great view systematized by Nagarjuna, said, yes, that's how things appear. But it's like a dream. It's just a play of interdependence where the role of conceptual imputation is the chef cooking up one dish after another. But the chef is there from the subjective side. The chef, the chef of conceptual designation is actually concocting one more reality after another, dishing it up, and then once it's dished up, it seems like it was already there and just happening to you, whereas you're the cook, the conceptual designate, conceptually designating mind. It's the cook in the dream, it's the cook in the waking state. Reality is like a dream. Waking state is like a dream. And then from the Dzogchen perspective, they see something a little bit different. As Tatantuku said many years ago when his English was very poor, like oh, 50 years ago, a long time ago, speaking to a small group of people, I think it was at um, in Big Sur, Esselin, friend of mine, Stephen Leberge, world expert on this dreaming. He was uh, receiving some teachings on dream yoga from Tatantuku. Tatantuku's English very limited. So he just said, this dream, He left out like. It's not like a dream. Right? From the perspective of Rigpa, this isn't like a dream. From the perspective of Rigpa, this is a dream. Therefore, when the Buddha was asked, who are you? Are you a spirit? Are you an earth elemental being? Are you a god? What are you? He said, no, no, no. Are you a human being? said, no. That was really the catch of that. That was the surprise. Are you a human being? said, no, I'm not. Who are you? Yeah, you know what he said. I'm awake. If you'd like to read a book that shows another kind of reality that was coexistent with our so-called modernity, read a book called, I think it's called Blazing Splendor, isn't it? Blazing Splendor. Yes, correct? Good. Blazing Splendor. Quite remarkable. I would say I have total competence, totally honest. This man has no reason to deceive us and he was not a deceitful man. He was an, an extraordinarily accomplished yogi. And the father of oh, people like Mingyar Rinpoche, Chukinyema Rinpoche, Soknyi Rinpoche, a couple of other Rinpoches. Mm, father of Rinpoches. But he describes a Tibet before the deluge. Quite remarkable. Very different. 
than anything that is normally deemed possible, that defies the imagination of the materialistic mind. So when the communist Chinese came in, they did their best to smother that world. Not only smother a worldview, but smother a world. They did their best. Quite successful. But not totally successful. So there's still hope. That light's still there. The flame's still burning. Not only outside of Tibet, like India, Nepal, Bhutan, and so forth. The light's still there, too. It's still there. It's still burning. Don't give up on Tibet. Not a political issue. So, let's see what the questions are. Oh, somebody wants to know about my meditative practice. Not much to say. So, that's that. That's my answer. Not much to say. So, here's a whole question asking me about my own experience. I'm sharing as much as I can that I find useful. Already doing it. I will continue to do so. I strongly encourage you not to focus on the teacher too much. Not useful. This gives rise to a lot of thoughts that have no resolution. So if I should tell you, oh, I have no experience, I'm a total failure in shamatha, you know, really nothing at all, and you think, oh, he's only doing that thing again, and then you don't really know. If I say I have no experience, total failure, then you don't really know. If I say, oh, I'm quite accomplished, I've achieved stage stage, stage six, stage seven, something like that, you don't know, maybe I'm deluded. Maybe I'm trying to trick you. Maybe I'm being way too humble. Maybe I'm a Vijayadara. If I should tell you I'm incredibly accomplished, I have achieved Shamadeva Vipassana, blah, blah, if I were to say that, then you might be very impressed or you might think, this guy's just full of crap. <laughs> and you won't know. So no matter what I say, you won't know. And that's because it's not really important. Either way. So I would say, don't dwell on it. It's not a very interesting question. I'll tell you a really interesting question. Can I be of any real practical value to you? The teachings I offer, can that be beneficial to you or not? If it's not, it doesn't matter who I am. And if they are, it doesn't matter who I am. So I think more useful just to think of me as like a mirage. When you look at a mirage, or a, what's it called? Holographic image. You don't ask of the holographic image. Oh, does it have realization? How much? How far did you get? How long did it take you? It's a holographic image. There's nothing to say. There's nothing there. So if you think that, that will kind of relieve your mind and get back to more important questions that are really worthwhile, for which you can get an answer. But how's your practice going? Because that's the only reason I'm here. So I would not dwell on that. I think that's so useful. When you get really accomplished teacher, like a young Tanabuche, then that's really special. As long as you have just me.
or nothing special. So, I have a question about loving kindness towards others when wishing somebody may you be well and happy. Is it good, for example, to imagine the person radiating happiness and looking happy with a smile? Yeah, it is. It is. comes up a lot in Vajrayana, where we're taking the fruit as the path. We're already anticipating what could be and drawing that, almost like taking a fishing rod or fishing fishing line and casting out into the pool and then reeling it in. We're casting our awareness out into the future and then reeling in what could be and imagine it being so in the present moment. It happens all the time in Vajrayana practice. Visualization practice, right? Imagining all sentient beings being enlightened here and now. Oh, it's very common. So certainly, why not? And we've done this already in the practice we just finished. We'll do it again. And that is, on the one hand, aspire for it, attend to this realm of possibility, and then imagine it being so. Invite it in. It's almost like you're calling into the realm of possibility. Welcome into the welcome into the realm of actuality. Sure, it's good. Can it also involve example, of, for example, wishing the peace of mind, or wishing them peace of mind, or that they have a good relationship with their children, partner, or succeed in their education? Definitely yes. These again, it's so easy to overlook and so important not to overlook others' wishes for hedonic well-being. Because most people really aren't probably not thinking that much about genuine happiness. You have to learn that. Or be extremely gifted and it comes up spontaneously. But when people are looking for a good education, imagine them receiving it, wishing them well. If they're looking for meaningful relationships, if they're looking for harmony in their families, these are all meaningful desires. They're hedonic and they're meaningful. Right? So to let your heart beat with theirs, to aspire for their aspirations and to imagine their own heart's desire coming true. So all's good. So in other words, how can you make may you be well and happy more concrete, less abstract, and how concrete can it go? Let it be. It's a very good question from, from, from Philippe. I know exactly what you're looking for. There you are. I know, where's Philippe? There you are. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, especially in our conversations. Especially. Especially that. Very good. And we easily underestimate, again with this great strangulation of the human imagination that's been brought to us by materialism. I really regard it. So, I'm sorry to harp on it, but I think it's really terribly detrimental. I really do. It's not just a philosophical view. I think it's death on wheels. And it strangles imagination. It's like an epidemic of imagination deficit disorder. It... it closes off the imagination to the power of the mind itself when we reduce it to brain function. It's flat. It's like a flat earth vision of the mind. And so what is the capacity of the mind? These mental images, states of consciousness, aspirations, these are every bit as real as nuclear explosions, as volcanoes, hurricanes, and so forth. The power of the mind is a natural power. It's not some little fiction. It's not some fluffy stuff that floats eff- like some effervescently out of the brain. The mind is terrifically powerful. And so when we visualize, know that you're doing something within the field of nature, your visualizations are having an impact on a subtle level, but they're real. They have causal efficacy. They're rising in dependence upon causes, and they have consequences in the natural world. So focusing on those who are living or those who are dead, those who are in the bardo, those who are still alive. 
directing one's thoughts of loving kindness, of compassion, directing one's visualization. You're dealing with forces of nature here. The one that's so easily overlooked, snuffed out, marginalized, negated, trivialized. And that is the power of consciousness in the natural world. So really we need to stop. This is delusion. This is just flat-out delusion. It's a superstition masquerading as science, which I think is a travesty. So invite in the power of the mind and transform reality with it. Cultivating relaxation by way of mindfulness of breathing, the breath has become so subtle that it almost feels like there is no breath in some sessions. When this is so, I easily slipped into drowsiness in some kind of blanked-out state. I try to focus on the nose and in the to and to, and to increase vividness, and even then the breath can be hard to catch. So what to do? With best wishes. Jolly good, very good question. And that question has been coming up for at least fifteen hundred years, but probably a lot longer. Which means it's a really good question, and it's been answered for a very long time. Um, what's happened is something very simple, and that is we have a certain at any point in time, along this path, we have a certain bandwidth of clarity, rather like a television with how much high definition, or the pixels, the cameras, you know, how many megapixels, megapixels, right? How much density, how many pixels per square, square centimeter. And so, and that also goes not only for subtlety, but also for temporal vividness, how many frames per second, you know? This is of the mind. And so, in any given situation along the path, we are able to detect a certain degree of subtlety, but then not beyond it. It's like, you know, the human eye picks up red, but not infrared, or not ultraviolet. We get that bandwidth, but not above it. For that, you need some kind of instrumented technology, and then it detects ultraviolet and gamma, and on we go into cosmic rays. And so, if your mental, your mental awareness can only pick up this bandwidth, and then you're getting sensations that are at a subtler level, a higher frequency, so to speak, then what do you get? Nothing. If that's, that's your target area, and the frequency of the stuff coming in is at a, is a higher degree of subtlety than what you're able to detect, you're getting the sensations, you're getting the signal, but your receiver is just not up to the task. And so you get nothing. And of course when you get nothing, then you get bored, you space out, you fall asleep, like there's nothing on the radio. You know, you're out. That just makes common sense. It's really good sense. Right? So as I said, this has been going on for years. So the first response is the one that I think this person was anonymous, which is cool. The first response is the one you've probably heard before. And it goes back to Buddha Gosa 1,500 years ago when he recounts an already old story of the meditator coming to the teacher and saying, I was focusing on the tip of the nose. I'm looking for sensations. I don't get any. So what do I do? And you remember the answer? He asked, are you in the womb? Are you still in the womb? Have you achieved states of samapati in the formless realm? From the fourth jhana on up? Are you dead? So consider those three, because babies in the womb don't breathe. It's all happening in the umbilical, right? People who are in the fourth jhana or higher, no breath. They can go without breathing for weeks on end. Such deep, so deep is the samadhi. So deeply in equilibrium is the whole body-mind that you need no air at all. And you come out of samadhi a couple of weeks later, there's no brain damage. Talk about stretching the imagination. That'll stretch the imagination of a lot of brain scientists. <laughs> and then people who are dead, well, that kind of goes with the territory. You're dead, well, you don't, you, you know, you don't need the re respirator anymore. It's, it doesn't work. 
But if you're not in the if you're not in the womb, you haven't achieved an extremely high state of samadhi, and you're not dead, then you're still breathing. So go back to the cushion and look more closely. So, but you already knew that because you said when you try to go back and look for it, you don't find it, and then that's just kind of frustrating. And as I said before, it's very important not to cultivate a habit of frustration. It can be really a habit, and being a habit, it can be difficult to break. So really, let's not make that habit. When you see frustration, face it, and then. One way or another, overcome it. Either, that is, you know, it's like warfare. If you're facing an enemy and it's just overwhelming, then retreat. Retreat's a really good idea. The only, the only quote from Mao Zedong that I ever pass on, because <laughs> most of what he had to say, I, had, I think, not so useful. <laughs> but this is very useful, because he was brilliant in his own way, in his own very limited way. In guerrilla warfare, he's very good. He really was very good as a guerrilla warfare commander. And his aphorism, which I invite you to remember, is when the enemy advances, I retreat. When the enemy retreats, I advance. When you have a smaller force, the enemy is bigger. That's really smart. You have a larger force. Well, when the enemy advances, just beat the crap out of them. That's because you have a larger force. You'll win. But if you have a smaller force, then that's the time to retreat. So, how to be clever, how to be smart when we're facing frustration? Well, you can try advancing, and that is attend more closely. Keeping the respiration natural, relaxed, effortless, and then advance in. With the, with the confidence, that's why the, the old teacher 1500 years ago said this, with the confidence there's something going on there in the target area. There's something going on, and I just haven't seen it, and that's because I need to pay closer attention. I need to increase the bandwidth, higher frequency, to pick up the subtlety of what is occurring there already, I don't need to make it happen. I don't need to start sniffing. Oh, now I got it. No, no, that's not helpful. Keep the breath flowing as it is naturally. Attend more closely. So try advancing. But if the advancing just leads you into just more of not getting anything, then throttle back and say, okay. Okay. Imagine the, the marvelous concert hall again with fantastic acoustics. There are many around Europe. The old ones, you know times of Mozart and Beethoven and so on. Fantastic acoustics. But imagine the, and imagine, that there's a soloist playing and like 5,000 people listening. It's a soloist. And it's not playing a trumpet, but playing a piccolo or acoustic guitar. Or maybe it's a single vocalist. Right? And you can't hear. You can't hear them. You can't hear them clearly. You paid good money for this performance. And you can't hear it. And the acoustics are fantastic. What's wrong? Why can't you hear it? If you have a pretty decent seat and the person's voice or the instrument is in perfectly good working order, why can't you hear it? Nico, why can't you hear it? You have to imagine ears are in good working order. Imagine there's no deafness, no, you know. This is just ordinary situation. Your ears are perfectly good. Because, yeah, people are talking. Or they're taking their, their little, or they're, <coughs> be quiet, be quiet. You know, just, there's too much noise. The acoustics are great, but all you're getting is the noise. Right? And you can't hear. So what do you need to do? Get everybody to be quiet. 
One possibility is just to stand up and say, everybody shut up! And then they might, you know, and then you kind of, but one way or another, the auditorium has to become quiet. Otherwise, it doesn't, how good, doesn't matter how good the acoustics are, you will not hear that subtle voice, that subtle instrument from the stage, if people are murmuring and babbling and, and taking their, their schedules and so forth, ruffling those, moving around, scratching and so forth and so on, you're not going to get it. There's too much noise. In other words, the clarity cannot come too crystal sharp unless the stability is greater. Stability is synonymous with stillness. The quieter your mind, the less noise in your mind, the greater capacity for clarity to come out that's not stressed, that's not pushed, that's not tight. Right? So if that if there's pin drop silence, which good audiences do, gee, if there's pin drop silence, then you don't have to strain. Because nobody goes wants to strain for two hours. That's not enjoyable. If it's really good acoustics and it's pin drop silence, everybody's respectful of the performance that's about to go on, then you can just relax. And in that stillness, the full capacity of the clarity the great acoustics of the auditorium, the clarity of your own hearing manifests and you get it. So, when you venture forward, if you're not getting it, then venture backwards. Come back to the abdomen. You'll get something in the abdomen. And bear in mind, whether in the abdomen or whether it's here at the nostrils, even when you don't detect the motion, the movement of the breath, the cool in-breath, the warm out-breath, even when you're not detecting the cessations of the movement of the air, if you attend closely enough, you will pick, pick, pick up in this target area the, at the apertures of the nostrils something that could be called like background radiation. And that is some tactile sensation right there in that very small target area. Some flow of sensation that's just always there. Because there are nerve endings. There are nerves there. So just try it for less than 10 seconds. Just focus right there. Tip of your nose. You don't have to move. And see if you can pick up anything there, even between breaths. Ten seconds is not too hard. Ten seconds, the mind can become quite quiet. Because you know it's not a marathon, it's a sprint. And in ten seconds, in that quietness, you'll be able to detect, huh, there is something happening there. And if you can remain engaged with that, the sensations that are even between in and out breath, then you'll pick up anything that is additional. Because you're always in contact with something. You pick up the additional, and the additional is the sensations of the flow of the in-breath and the out-breath, and then you're set. All set. And you can practice with continuity. An ongoing flow of knowing something. Oh yeah, last one. Two questions about awareness of awareness. Is the practice only to be for the knowing of mental activity? Or, for, or can it be, for example, when hearing a bird song, knowing the awareness of sound, or when there's a waft of cold air hits the skin, knowing the awareness of the sensation. Very good question, and there's an unequivocally correct answer, and that is, you're giving no attention, not deliberately giving any attention at all to any sensory field. Not to sound, not to touch, not even to thoughts and images, and not even to the space of the mind. This is, in other words, radically not open awareness, radically not choiceless awareness, this is a radically choiceful awareness, and you're choosing very little. 
which is the only awareness of awareness. Only that sheer, unmediated, unadorned, unembellished, unclosed experience, raw, naked, essential, not being dead, not being totally asleep, being awake, knowing, 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 being awake. That's it. Nothing else is of interest. Other appearances arise until about stage eight or so. Appearances arise. Let him be. Not of interest. Have a nice day. I'm busy. <laughs> Full-time job. Just awareness of awareness. Very simple. And be satisfied. This is a major deal. So many people find it difficult. Oh, I can't do it. It's so elusive. I'm not sure when I'm doing it right. And that's because your expectations are too high. Almost likely. Really. We really are dealing with the most indubitable kind of knowing that we have. That's my strong belief. I've not gotten any evidence to the contrary yet. And that is right now. Have you ever had a dream? And I don't ask you to raise your hand, but just consider, have you ever had a dream that was this vivid? Where you look around and you can see people's clothing, their facial expressions, like, whoa, this is really real. Have you ever had a dream that vivid? I have. Nothing special about me. But yeah. In other words, and if that's the case... If you've had dreams, if it's, if it's possible to have dreams where the appearances in the dream are as vivid, as detailed, as realistic as what you're getting in the waking state, then it's not irrational to ask the question, might you be dreaming right now? The mere fact that this is so realistic, that's not a sufficient answer. I had a dream oh, some months ago. It was so vivid. It was so vivid. In the midst of the dream, I thought, could this be a dream? And I looked at it again, and it was so vivid. I said, nah. <laughs> Missed one more opportunity. <laughs> so might we be dreaming right now? Might you not have been accepted this retreat? And you're actually back home, <laughs> wishing you were here. And that dream manifesting as having got accepted and you know, being here. And enjoying the good food and so forth. Whereas you just sleep in your old bed. Is it possible? It's conceivable. It's not irrational to ask the question. Huh? But I would say it's irrational to ask the question. Might consciousness not exist at all? Might there be no such thing as being aware? I see no rational way to ask that question. Because if you've asked it, you've already answered it. Rocks can't ask questions. Pieces of paper don't ask, gee, am I aware or am I not aware? You know? So it's indubitable. It's just beyond the scope of rational doubt. That's not to say that people don't doubt it. There are books written about how consciousness doesn't exist. But these are by people who, whose minds are so numbed. And I well, pin the tail on the donkey again, on a big, great jackass of metaphysical systems, of materialism. Believing that there's only the brain, and therefore believing consciousness doesn't exist because they can't measure it. This is really the ultimate triumph of dogmatism. But now, outside of the rigid religious framework, and unhappily has captivated the imaginations of modern academia. So, I would say it's not something one can rationally doubt. Which means you already know it. Which means you already know that you are aware. 
And this practice is just settling in what you already know, that it is indubitable, impossible to doubt rationally. And resting in that simple knowing, your most indubitable knowing, resting on firm ground. It's really the fulfillment of Descartes' aspiration to be able to to drop his anchor, to make an existential statement at a point that is cannot be doubted. And he dropped his anchor way too soon with I think, therefore I am. Way too cluttered. Doesn't illuminate what I means. Doesn't acknowledge the fact that, that thoughts happen without anybody doing them. So to my mind, he really dropped his anchor in a shallow pool that can profoundly be doubted. But go into deeper water, being aware, know that, rest there, take no interest in anything else. That's shamatha without a sign. Can you talk about the first of the four links of dependent origination, namely avidya, or the first four links? One of these days, yeah. Not now, though. But I will, one of these days. Avidya. Avidya. Unawareness. Unawareness. It all starts with unawareness. A blanketing, obscuring of who we are. But we'll get to that later. There'll be a time. So, any questions, observations, insights? Yes, we'll start with Deborah. And the microphone's coming. I have a question about dreaming. Um, I've been having vivid dreams. I wasn't the pirate, but I have been some other quite interesting things. Yeah. Um, should we just let go, <coughs> or is it a better idea to try and do the, the lucid dreaming and go back into the dream if the dream's been disturbing? Just the last part of the question. Should you let go, or? If the dream has been disturbing, should oh, we oh, oh, yes. release it, or is it a better idea to try and go back in and do the lucid dreaming, reframe it? Well, that's a very good question. And if, if we rephrase the question, it could be rephrased as something is disturbing, something disturbing is happening. Is it better to understand it or to run away from it? And I think phrased that way, it's a self-answering question. Right? Now, again, sometimes retreat is the smartest thing to do. That's what Mao Zedong said for his guerrilla warfare tactics. Within the two broad modes of meditation that we're exploring over these eight weeks, shamatha is a retreat. We're going into retreat every session. We are withdrawing. We are withdrawing. Knowing with recognition, the wise recognition, that in our present mode, when we're actively engaged in the multitasking, the world of social connections and activities and multitasking and all of that, we're losing the battle. We're losing the battle. Samsara is overwhelming us. Samsara is winning. And the sands of life are running out. Right? So, recognizing that, it makes really good sense to say, I'm not winning this battle. So I think I'm going to retreat. I'm going to head off to Phuket for eight weeks. Not that you've gone out outside of samsara, but you have gone out of a whole way of life that can be very defeating. And coming into a context that can be very empowering, in a very benevolent kind of way. Empowering a virtuous mind. 
And so that's a retreat. We all came here for a retreat. I did. Even I get to meditate quite a few hours a day. And so that's a very wise retreat. Shamatha is a retreat. We're retreating in mindfulness of breathing from everything other than the breath. We, re- we retreat from all the sense fields except for this one lingering island. This one little tiny island of sensory input. That little tiny target at the tip of the nose and everything else we retreat from. Right? Settle the mind in its natural state, we withdraw. We retreat from all of the five physical senses into one cinema hall. One domain of experience, just the mental. Awareness of awareness, shamatha speaking. In terms of shamatha, awareness of awareness is the ultimate retreat. Maybe the ultimate retreat is just falling asleep. Blacking out. I guess that's the ultimate retreat. So we do that, but we already know how to do that. But retreating even from all appearances and just coming into awareness itself. That's a big retreat. And then we have the four immeasurables. And each of these is an expedition. It's venturing forth. It's venturing forth in the world possibility within the field of the mind. It's venturing forth when we are re-engaging with the world, as many of us, perhaps all of us will, six and a half weeks. It's re-engaging, transforming the way we attend to everyone around us. That's an expedition, getting out of ruts. So, that dynamic, breathing out, breathing in, breathing in retreat, breathing out an expedition. Breathing in shamatha, breathing out the four measurables. And I've completely forgotten what your question was. It was about dreams. And there we go. So, this was in fact all a response to that question. So, disturbing dream comes up. As in the disturbing dream of life on planet Earth in, in the year 2011. It's quite a big disturbing dream with a lot of players on the stage. Sometimes it's really better to retreat. That's why we're here. And sometimes if a dream is just overwhelming and you feel it's just overwhelming, it's just too much, then good. When you see there's an option, retreat. So it was Tsongaba in his presentation, his his writings on dream yoga and his book on the six yogas of Naropa. He said the easiest way to become lucid is to have a really rotten dream and and then recognize it's a dream and as soon as you recognize it, get out. It's like being a pilot in a jet fighter, in a, in a jet, and seeing your, your, your plane is on fire. You've got a button for that. It's called the ejector button. And you say, hey, this plane's on fire. It's going to blow up any moment. And you just went into retreat. And the plane crashes, but you're not in it. So that's one possibility. And that's the easiest way to become lucid for a very short time. About two or three seconds before you hit eject and you pop yourself right out of the dream. So sometimes that can be the best thing to do. But as you become more adept, as you explore more deeply, become more familiar with the nature of dream reality, then you see that's kind of like the cheap way out, and there's not a lot of insight to be gained from that. Immediate immediate relief. And there's a lot to be said for immediate relief. But it doesn't give much insight. And so as you become more familiar, then to be a bit more bold. And so when you see... When you're looking right there, you're right on the knife's edge, and you could venture forward into the dream with lucidity, knowing the nature of the dream, or you could just back up and either change the dream entirely or just pop out of the dream and wake up. When you're right there on the knife's edge, and you see there's a decision to be made, on those occasions when you're feeling bold, then venture into it. Venture into the dream as lucidly as you can. 
And that wisdom is your power. I mean, very literally. That wisdom, I mean, what did they say? Knowledge is power? I think it's part of the educational slogans, isn't it? Knowledge is power? There's a lot of truth to that. Well, likewise in a dream. Knowing the dream as a dream is power. That you can really, you can master it. You can train, you can transform it at will. And by the more thoroughly you fathom it, then the more thoroughly you'll fathom that you don't need to change it. Because there's nothing there that can hurt you. Because you're a mirage. And how can you possibly hurt a mirage? Machine gun? Poisonous gas? Toxic virus? Smallpox? Can't hurt a mirage. But then, of course, there's nothing there that could hurt you because you hurt you because you're surrounded by mirages. It's all mirages. It's all clear light. All expressions of the luminosity of your own awareness. And there's nothing to fear. Oh, yeah. Good. Dinner time. Enjoy dinner. <laughs>